Oh, sorry. Perfect. Okay. Welcome back to part two of Shattering Our Perspectives, continuing our conversations from what has it been last week, maybe? Whenever our last episode was released. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so bad. Oh my God. <laughs> this is great, you guys. Bundlers, it's all good. I haven't recorded in a long, hot minute. So this is great. Thanks for listening and putting up with me. We were talking about how dealing with a difficult patient, part of that is now that we come with a lot of responsibility and putting in orders. And with everything we do, we have to consider risks and benefits. And I think one thing that I didn't realize that I probably should have realized as a freaking med student was how important EBM was, um, which is evidence-based medicine. And this is how medicine rolls in the United States, Uh, probably everywhere else as well, but I can only speak from what I've learned here. It's risk-benefit assessments. It's what is the probability of what we're going to be doing actually finds whatever disease we're doing or searching for. We're not doing any diseases, right? What is the probability of outcomes of treatments and so on? It's all the mathematical parts of medicine that we all just kind of cringe at a bit. But I didn't realize how important it was in making decisions when you're on the spot, right? As a med student, you're like, whatever. EBM is like that one thing on that one test. But then you're here as a resident and you're sitting here and you're like, should I order this test? What is the benefits of ordering this test? Am I going to harm them if I order this test? It also costs them money as well, right? And I think that has been one of my biggest stresses so far as an intern. Totally. I agree, Lean. I have a newfound appreciation for EBM as well. But also taking a dual perspective, we did do an episode on decolonizing medical research. So make sure you go back and listen to that episode if you hadn't already. But um, EBM, I think, has become more important in my perspective in terms of using protocols that help you in urgent situations where the evidence guides that protocol and then you have it and it's consistent treatment that you know has good outcomes um, relative to just going in blind, right? And so I have appreciation for protocols, but, you know, (laughs) there's also the other side where all protocols don't fit all patients and you still have to be critical of that. So I'm trying to navigate that balance of utilizing EBM more and being more cognizant about looking up data and statistics, but also recognizing when a particular study or metric might not be applicable to the patient in front of me. And that's kind of been difficult. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you feel like maybe you or your team is too much focusing on the statistical part of it that they're forgetting treating the patient themselves? I think that's something I've noticed a few times. And it's absolutely, again, like shattered my perspective on, you know, EBM is important. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's absolutely how we run medicine. But Sometimes when you're trying to basically disengage the team just a bit from the EBM side to look at the patient, I get more negative pushback with that. And that's something I feel like as a med student, maybe I didn't realize as much. But when as a resident now that I'm like, oh, but did you guys even look at the patient? Like, did you like look at the patient? I don't think this is going to work for them or use your clinical basis to figure out the disease rather than saying, let's run a test for this patient that might not be the best thing for them. It's a balance um, between treating the patient and not the numbers, right? 100% agree with everything both of you have said. I also think that. So where does. Where does wisdom come from, right? That's the bigger question. And wisdom comes from the experiences other people have been through. So if evidence-based medicine was perfect, right, we could combine all those experiences and seeing patterns in those experiences and then 
applying them to patients. But that also means and recognizes that every person is unique, right? And this therapy or this diagnostic modality that we're going to use might not work on them, right? And I think, Lean, one thing that I appreciate you said is like, you know, people will say evidence-based medicine and they they will say, this has a 46% this, this has a 58% this, right? I think the bigger thing that we need to get good at is, should I use this for my patient? Will it be good for them or will it not be good for them? Like, I don't need to know the exact number. For my knowledge, I might need to know the exact number, right? Because that's what I'm learning and I'm I'm a student and I should know 46%, 80%. But the bigger question is, should I use this on my patient or not? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a lot of residents I've made friends with in my residency. And there's kind of this continuing joke between us. We're all kind of different specialties. And they'll say, don't fall into the protocols, be a clinician. And I think that's something that I always fear going through residency, especially and even as a med student, I feared it. But now that I'm in it and I'm now learning to be that doctor that I want to be, I worry that is what I'm learning going to make me forget the clinician part of me where that includes what is best for the patient, looking at the patient. Yeah, but I also want to say, Lean, that like that is also the art of medicine that you do know when to use the protocol, right? Like if a patient is has a high heart rate, their blood pressure is low, they're bleeding out, you're like, yes, I need to give them fluids. Like that's the thing you do, right? Right. But sometimes I feel like that we convince ourselves that the statistical part of it is the benefit for the patient. And so we don't actually say like, for instance, one case I had was a really young person who just had constant bleeding, menopausal bleeding. In my head, I'm thinking this is probably PCOS. They've got signs of PCOS. But, you know, with my team, they're like, no, we have to look for tumors. We have to look for this. We have to look for that. And I'm thinking those are all so invasive tests to do when you have the clinical suspicion in front of you. So then at what point? And I actually got into an argument with my seniors about this. And I said, no, I don't think we need to do all this invasive testing, right? Lean, I think part of what feeds into that is also the cover your ass from an insurance perspective for the hospital. I agree. I agree. Like you can use the statistics and the EBM all you want, but if at the end of the day you're still worried, like say it's 46%, but you're like, what about the rest? And that's our insurance. And that's like, we need to cover our ass. So let's just do it because like doing the test is not that harmful. And that's something I didn't realize how much actually, like as a med student, I did not realize how much we are worried about that. Obviously, everybody, when you go into med school, they're always like, oh, you're going to get sued, you're going to get sued, right? But I didn't realize how much that freaks us out as doctors. And that's where we tend to over, I think, do tests and, you know. And that becomes the issue, right? Because the issue is I have a patient and I have to do all the right things so I don't get in trouble rather than I have to do all the right things because this is for the patient. right? And I think that's where a lot of us get stuck because it is scary, right? Like no one wants to get quote unquote in trouble, right? And so we start chasing that when in reality, we should be working on just doing right by our patients because that's why we wanted to do this in the first place, right? But I totally get why so many providers get jaded and start thinking that way because it's just so in your face. So this kind of brings up something that I've been thinking about while we're talking about this topic and both in part one and part two, and you're our emergency doctor. So I 
got to spend a month in the emergency department. And, you know, seeing that type of medicine, everything is super in your face quickly. Like it's things that you deal with everywhere else, but you just see it like in the same shift, taking care of the same patient, right? Like you're admitted them, you do your whole thing, and then you discharge them and everything happens within a couple of hours. So with that, I also noticed when it comes to evidence-based medicine and making sure you made all the right decisions because it's such an emergent situation, right? Or it's done so quickly. I think that in that arena, that stuff is really important, like the evidence-based medicine and being very quick on your toes. And like, I did X, Y, and Z, because if this patient leaves and something happens to them, like, at least I made sure I looked at all these things, right? But in reality, the utility of emergency medicine should be in emergent situations. But the issue becomes so many use it as a primary care place that we have to think about all of these things, right? So I totally understand when you say like, you know, I have to deal with these patients sometimes and I know that they need this treatment, but there's not enough time to maybe like develop a relationship with them because you might never see them again. Like there's a bunch of different things that you have to navigate and think through. In those situations, yeah, sometimes you'll see people will just be like, you know, I rather just make sure I do all the steps and like Margot said, cover my ass, then like actually have to think about the patient because it's such a time crunch type of situation. So what I'm trying to say, Lean, is that it is such a difficult world to navigate. I was only there for a month, you know? That's a good point, Harjeet. So the emergent situations is when I really do appreciate the protocols that have been like based and proven by EBM. But to your point, Lean, in that um, adolescent that you had with the menstrual bleeding, it's like if she had been in an OBGYN or her primary care clinic, she probably wouldn't have gotten the full workup and the diagnosis would have been given more thought and time like you wanted to. But I see it in the ED and the PED side where a lot of, and this is the unfortunate part of the way our healthcare system is set up, that people come to the emergency room for common primary care concerns, which is fine that ED is there for everybody. But, you know, when you have kids coming in for constipation to the ED and then you get them an abdominal x-ray just because you have to make sure it's not something more serious because why did they come to the ED? Then, you know, now this kid has gotten radiation. But if I had seen him in my general clinic, he probably would have just sent him home with a bowel clean out. And so that is really hard to navigate. And I think that is a huge weakness of our healthcare system as a whole that we need to address. And I think that's shattering our perspective because we come in with a very naive view. Like literally, that's everybody. Like we're going to become doctors. We're going to help our patients. But I think the thing that it's been shattered day in and day out every step of the day when I move forward is that we are all trying to do our best. Or at least I hope that we all are trying to do our best and use the resources we have to provide the best care for our patients. And I think having conversations like these, either with each other or now we have this platform of a podcast that we can have these conversations with a lot of people is where I try to put my time and thought into every patient. So when I was in the emergency department, I guess I was also lucky because I was an off-service resident, so I didn't have to take on that many patients. But I had the time and energy to 
really think about like, okay, so what do I think this patient has? Do I really think they need these tests or not? And how can I actually even develop a relationship with my patient and talk to them for 30, 40, 40 minutes? But sometimes we don't have that luxury. And I'm sure lean in a place you are, that's definitely different than where I am. Yeah, I was just gonna say, you mentioned that your patient population um, is very different than ours here in Utah in terms of like resources available and socioeconomic factors. And so I wonder how much we change our perspective and like the way we think about the EBM when it's a patient who's uninsured sitting in front of us versus one who has like the best insurance coverage and like what decision points we make with that bias fed in. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have to take into like consideration is that we're kind of a low resource hospital as well. And so what can we do here versus what we can't do here? You obviously start to see the business side of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how embedded it was. I've I always heard about it, right? Like, again, you hear about it all the time as med students, but it's not until you're there. The business side and the U.S. healthcare system and all its flaws are so embedded in our system. You see it on a one-to-one interaction every single time with patients. I never thought it would be that dramatic, I guess. One thing that really opened my eyes was when I was, you know, on the ambulance rotation where I actually went into people's homes and I saw, you know, living situations and I saw, you know, different different environments and things like that, ranging all the way from, you know, people who were homeless and we'd have pronounced them in the street all the way to living the projects. And I've never seen anything like that. And that's when I started to realize it's like, like you have to, you have to apply all this evidence-based medicine, all this clinical information that's probably was researched in a much higher resource, not inner city environment. And now you got to bring it here. And a lot of times these patients, they're, it's not of their fault but they come a lot of times masking other health issues. It's really crazy how patients will come in for such quote-unquote benign chief complaints and then you find some other things. And you're like, how do you apply evidence-based medicine to this? I don't understand. And I think that's something that completely blew my mind away. And I think we've talked a lot about how so much of our perspective has been shattered by internship and now being residents. And so I wonder, and I'm trying to think about how I now interact with med students, how even my perspective now as a resident about med students has changed too. Oh my gosh, so much. My poor med students. So that's our topic for part three. Thank you for joining us in how our perspective has changed about evidence-based medicine as residents. Join us next time as we discuss and continue the conversation about how we're applying these new perspectives to working with med students. Thanks for listening (laughs) to Bundle of Hers. Continue the conversation at Bundle of Hers on Instagram, or if you'd like more information, check us out at bundleofhers.com. Here's a sneak peek of the next episode. Our mindsets are constantly shifting. The way we think about things and view things are constantly changing. When I think of what it means to shatter my perspective it also means that I'm growing in some sense and that's exciting the biggest shift in my perspective as a resident now working with med students is realizing how not critical your role as a med student is compared to how critical you feel like it is as a med student Being a clinician should not be limited by a specialty you choose, right? You're always going to be a clinician. You've learned this stuff. You can look up the most up-to-date information. We are clinicians. We can be adaptable. And I think that's something, if I was a med student, I went back to being a med student, it's something I would definitely be more aware of.